Hi there, welcome in. It is Downtown the Podcast, episode 71. Coming to you from the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine. I'm Rich Kimball here with Carrie Haskell. Our daily show, Downtown, originates from right here in Bangor every weekday from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Zone Radio stations as well as streaming audio at WZONAM.com and our webpage, which is downtownwithrichkimball.com. Well, this week on the program, we salute country music, specifically the wonderful new country music documentary series Ken Burns has put together that begins on September 15th nationwide on the stations of the public broadcasting system. We'll talk with Ken about the making of this remarkable eight-part, 16-and-a-half-hour series and also hear from some of the people who are involved and are key players telling the story of country music, the great whispering Bill Anderson, Kathy Matea, and Roseanne Cash, all important parts of this Ken Burns documentary. But let's begin with the man himself. We caught up with Ken Burns uh, on his way to Bakersfield, California, for a presentation there, talking about the series and some great country artists from out that way, including Merle Haggard and Buck Owens. Here's our conversation with Ken Burns about country music. Hey, Rich. How are you? Doing just great. Thank you so much for making time for us, as always. No, no. Other way around. Thank you. I've been immersed uh, all 16 hours the last you few got nights. All 16. God bless you. We're all grateful. I'm, I'm in a car with uh, Dayton Duncan and Julie Dunphy, my two co-producers. Dayton also wrote the script. Uh, and we are traveling down the Central Valley of California on our way to Fresno and Bakersfield to honor, you know, uh, the Maddox brothers and Rose and Buck Owens and Merle Haggard and, and, and Dwight Yoakam uh, uh, by, by going out off the normal beaten path of a promotional tour and doing stuff in Fresno and Bakersfield. As somebody who teaches history, but my first job was as a country DJ back in the mid-1970s, uh, this was like a, a homecoming for me, and it was it was just wonderful. I think of a couple of, of wonderful quotes that come up in the film. Uh, the great Harlan Howard, who says, country music is three chords and the truth. That's the, that's the most important one. I didn't mean to interrupt you, Rich, but no. that's the most important one. You know, uh, that's why it's in a central position in the introduction. Uh, that, that says it all. And then Merle Haggard says, country music is about the things we believe that we can't see. You, you've done it. I, you know, you might as well just go write your thing, uh, do your whatever you're going to do uh, with yourself because you got it. You figured out. You broke the key. Uh, you, and you're talking about stuff in the first six minutes of this film. Both of those are exactly right. The line from Harlan Howard that's spoken by the narrator and Merle Haggard, the things that we believe in but can't see. And yet I understand that the story of country music was more complicated perhaps than you thought it would be when you first began the project. Can I tell you that there hasn't been a project we've worked on in 40 years that isn't so tremendously more complicated than what we came in believing? <laughs> you know, what we have to do is shed our biases and our baggage and, more importantly, shed the conventional wisdom we think we have about a particular subject. And it's only by resetting to zero that we then permit these things to happen. And because we never stop researching and we never stop writing, we are permitted to constantly adjust over the many years it takes us, that we insist we have to have to do this, um, to change the, the, the film as we learn more and more information about something. And, you know, filmmakers are notorious for not, you know, once the scene is working, is, is not wanting to touch it. Oh, that's too good. Let's leave it alone. But in fact, we've learned 
just to sort of sigh and say it's complicated. We have a neon sign in our editing room that says that, and then set about to make that perfect thing even better because of the contradictory, um, you know, uh, information we have. Roseanne says about her father, Johnny Cash, that, you know, he could hold two contradictory things at the same time and believe in them with a kind of equal force. And so as we as storytellers and filmmakers know that at the heart of a good story is often that fact that you have to hold two opposing things um, and not choose either one of them, but understand that the complexities of life, which country music mirrors and reflects so well, despite the three chords business, that truth is uh, filled with contradiction and undertow, and that's, that's human life, and, and that's why country music so effective. I thought it was fascinating uh, early in the film uh, when you discussed the origins of the three principal instruments of country music and how that in many ways uh, reflects the diversity of country when you talk about the banjo, the fiddle, and the guitar. Yep. Well, everything about American music is mongrel, right? There's nothing pure about it. You'll take music that has a kind of homogeneity from a country or a continent, and uh, then you'll do something. You'll mix it with something else, and it will be, you know, great. You know what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. The role of uh, radio was also huge in the rise of country music with those the superstations, the WSB in Atlanta, uh, WLS in Chicago with the old barn dance, and also WSM in Nashville, of course. That's exactly right. I, I think we, we wouldn't have had country music sort of catch on as quickly and as, you know, so firmly in everyone's heart if there hadn't been radio disseminating it, particularly in the Depression when people couldn't buy a record, um, they could listen to it for free. And so you would find the one, quote, luxury, I would suggest it's not a luxury but a necessity in the poorest of families would be a radio uh, that would connect them to the world. Uh, I made a film on the early days of radio and the great Radio commentator Norman Corwin said that radio abolished loneliness, mm. and that's because it may it may have been it may have been possible for you to hear uh, Hank Williams saying, "I'm so lonesome I could cry," and you could cry too. And in those tears, you would have a connection to somebody else. One of the overarching themes in this wonderful film is the role of women, starting with Sarah Carter, and then all the way through to, to Patsy Cline, uh, Kitty Wells, Patsy Montana, uh, singer-songwriters who were way ahead of their time, like Loretta Lynn and Dolly Parton. Women has, have always been an incredibly integral part of music. This was a stunning and unexpected discovery for us, too, and um, that the foundational, the two foundational folks in country music uh, are arguably, you know, Mother Maybell and Sarah Carter, Sarah with her voice and Mother Maybell with her guitar picking, which has influenced everybody else. And all as you as the list you just gave us, it goes all the way through. And many of the issues and 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 conflicts of today are mirrored in the generations of, of women who had to, you know, be that much better. Uh, uh, and, and avoid that, you know, uh, difficult executive and all the things we're talking about with Me Too uh, have been there for the beginning. And so we love the fact that Loretta may not call herself a feminist or may not speak about women's liberation, but she's talking about these themes well before anybody in, in rock or, or, or folk is doing. And that's, that's pretty impressive. And so, yeah, that, that knocked our socks off. 
We're talking with Ken Burns here on Downtown. Uh, the Carter family, the first family of country music, like so many country artists, their lives in many ways were a country song as well. I, I didn't know a, a lot of the background there, but what a fascinating story they are. You, you, you can't believe it. And in fact, they represent the um, uh, Sunday morning of the early beginnings of country music. Um, they are supposedly about mother and family and the home. And um, this and, and Jimmy Rogers is the opposite of this, the Saturday night and uh, the rogue, the scamp, uh, the sort of uh, screwing up the people for whom you know you have to go to church the next morning to sort of reconcile uh, <laughs> your sins of the previous night. But then, of course, within the story of the Carter family is a melodrama, you know, of, of incomparable dimensions that sort of belie the outward purity of the story, and that's very human, too. And we don't need to judge it. We can just accept it. We've all been through what they've been through. We've all have experienced, or we know people who have experienced what they went through. And then when you get to the story, no one in Hollywood would invent <laughs> the final chapter, uh, or at least the, the cementing of Sarah Carter's future. And, and you know, we're, you and I are not going to give it away to your listeners, but... Uh, this is about as great a story as you could possibly come. And, oh, by the way, it's in episode two, yeah. <laughs> you know, and there's many more episodes to come. Country music in its early days was still largely regional. Can you explain how World War II helped to nationalize country music? Well, World War II did nationalize it, and that's a really important thing. Um, first of all, Amer all of American music is a mix. And so when a country mobilizes and goes to war, you do that mix with people. So people from every uh, corner of the country find themselves with people from regions they might never in their lifetime um, get to meet. And in fact, it's World War II that begins the incredible mobility of Americans who begin to sort of cross-pollinate with everybody else. Um, and so when we think in, a, in that superficial, conventional way about what World War II is, the music we always use as the soundtrack to it is uh, the swing music of, of Benny Goodman and Glenn Miller and that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. and, and that was popular. But as popular, if not more popular, was country music and the various um, songs that were sung. And so we're, you know, Patsy Montana, I'll Wait for You, and Elton Britt, you know, there's a Star Spangled Banner waving somewhere. These are all the songs that everybody heard, and it helped. I mean, certainly radio is helping, particularly the stations like WSM, uh, with those signals. But this this is the beginning of the nationalization of country music, and you're going to come back from World War II, and you're going to stop calling it hillbilly. You're going to eventually stop calling it country and western. You're finally just going to say what it is, country. And by that time, that's true. It's across the country. It doesn't just mean rural, which is, of course, the obvious and literal uh, understanding of it. It came from rural places. But it's so interesting that the story of its extraordinary growth is tied as much to cities as it is to the rural areas from which it sprang. That's something that I think people may find very, very interesting, uh, especially from the first episode, is how the earliest parts of country music actually sort of came out of the city of Atlanta. Yeah, so Ralph Peer has been recording race music. That means rhythm and blues. Uh, that means Bessie Smith. Um, and he's also doing a lot of ethnic records, you know, Chinese and European, French and Italian and German and Slovakian. Um, 
music, and he wonders whether there might be a market for, you know, this old uh, hill country music, old-time hill country music. And, of course, there is. And in 1923, he records Fiddle and John Carson uh, in uh, Atlanta, who's a mill worker who came from the hills, uh, but is very has been very much urbanized, and he's willing to drop all of the urban... I, 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 I'm not sure I want to say sophistication, but at least to adopt that hillbilly posture. He be, he adds fiddling without the G uh, to his uh, nickname, to his moniker, and that takes it off. And then a, a few years later, four years later, in 1927 in Bristol, uh, Tennessee, uh, just across the street from Bristol, literally across the street from Bristol, Virginia, he records the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers, and they don't sound anything alike. Jimmy's Saturday night and the Carter family, as we discussed, are Sunday morning. And it's off to the races, and it's, it's going to be, from then on, picking up all different flavors. But what's key in the early days that's not spoken about too much, which our series reflects in every episode, is that there's always an African dimension, African-American dimension to this. You know, the banjos from Africa, mm. but... Uh, A.P. Carter travels around with Leslie Riddle. A.P. can remember the words but can't remember the metal melody, and Riddle can't. Um, you know, the influences of uh, black artists on, on Jimmy Rogers and Hank Williams and Bill Monroe and Johnny Cash and everybody, it's all there. So it's always been a mix from the very beginning, and um, we're thrilled to, to sort of share this inclusive uh, story. Um, it wouldn't be American music unless it was a melting pot of all sorts of influences, you know, from church music to, to traveling medicine shows, to minstrelsy, to, to, to Tin Pan Alley, to all sorts of things go in to make up what we call country music, but also, I could say, jazz, and also rhythm and blues later on. So they've all got the mix. That's the characteristic of any uh, American form. And, of course, rhythm and blues and country are going to be the parents of rockability and therefore rock and roll. So many great artists are portrayed in this film, uh, but to me, the heroic figure of the story is Johnny Cash, who brought together so many styles, embraced artists from all genres, and, and could never be anything less than true to himself. That's exactly right, and I think that he is the, the polymath, the patriarch of it all, who, who arcs across our series, because uh, he very conveniently, for us storytellers, marries into the Carter family there at the get-go, there at the Big Bang, and of course, it is death that is the last story of our of our series, and and is the bookend of of what we're doing. Um, yes, uh, and I think it has to do with his. He is the ultimate country person because he understood that it was never one thing. So he is going to prisons and saying, "You mean something to me." He's going to Native American reservations and saying, "You are not less of a human being than me." He he's looking at the poor and the downtrodden. He's speaking to the dark side as well as to the light side. He's including a gospel uh, song in every uh, performance that he does, every one of his television shows at the, you know, against the wishes of the producers, um, includes a gospel show. He's bringing on new talents. He's reaching into folk. He has a friendship with Bob Dylan. He's, he is the person who is restless and unsatisfied, and he is symbolically represents that energy and that appetite that's been at the heart of country music from the beginning. And that's not then to take away from the Merle Haggards and the Dolly Partons and the Hank Williamses and the Patsy Cline's, but just to say that, you know, he stands out in proud relief uh, as, as perhaps 
country's greatest ambassador. I've read that uh, you've said you're a convert to country music now. Uh, was there one story, one performer that pulled you in? What was it that, that drew you into this world? We drink the Kool-Aid on every project we do, but I don't <laughs> think we've drunk it more fully and with deep satisfaction than we've done here. Um, yeah, no, I, I didn't. I knew some. I worked in a record store. Uh, my daddy and my granddaddy sang to me uh, what you would call country songs and folk country songs and hill country songs. My people come from the Appalachian Mountains of Virginia, Burnsville, to be adva- to, to be precise, still there in Virginia. Um, but uh, it wasn't my music. But when we start a project, we dive into it, into the deep end, and, and we love it now. And I'm, I'm so happy that it's in my life. And I have, as Charlie Pride says in the opening, you know, a song for every mood. Uh, even though one might make you cry, uh, you feel better for crying, he says. And that's it, it, the cathartic power of country music is so pervasive and so exciting that I can't wait to share it with the rest of the country. And, and, and as we've experienced bringing people into our editing room during the process, the folks that know a lot about it and love it, you'll say, wow, I had no idea that that's why that song was written or what the circumstances of that person's biography or how great that songwriter was or whatever it might be. Um, that there was even something new for the most ardent of country fans. And for those people who say, well, I don't know much, uh, they say, I didn't realize that I did know more than I did because how, how wide country music embraces. And for those who say, you know, I, had, I have a friend of mine, a dear friend who says, um, you know, Ken, I've loved all the things you've done, but country music, I don't know. And then he sat down as we had a screening of it, and he was in a puddle at the end. And now all he listens to is country music and is still abject and apologetic that he could have possibly been, you know, proclaimed any apostasy while we were well, you know, before that moment. And, and that's exciting to us. And we hope that, you know, we all understand that somebody might come in with Emmy Lou Harris or the, or the outlaw movement, or maybe from the get-go with Jimmy Rogers or the Carter family, or certainly no one. If, if you know, if somebody doesn't like Hank Williams, then I, we can't help you. Um, <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Uh, but, uh, or Johnny or, or Merle uh, or, or Dolly or, or, or Loretta. Um, these are all the great, great, great composers and singer-songwriters of, of this genre. But we're just so thrilled to be able to share the backstory. This isn't the reading of the telephone book. We'll leave people out that we, it was painful for us to leave out in order to tell a story that we hope will bring people in and send them, uh, you know, uh, to the music uh, that they want to find out and send them to the folks that maybe only have a mention here, um, but they want to know more about uh, we're we're so excited that we'll be able to share that with the rest of the country. Ken, the amount of uh, interview footage for a project of this scope must just be massive. Beyond what you use for the actual documentary, how important is it for you and your team to catalog and preserve that that information? That's huge. You know, we've just taken the full interviews, not the edited interviews, the full interviews and their transcripts. 101 people, 100 more than 175 hours and given it to the Country Music Hall of Fame so it will be available for scholars and students uh, in the future. But, you know, you know how maple syrup is made. You know, 40 gallons of sap to make one gallon of maple syrup. We did 101 interviews, 175 hours. We looked at 100,000 photographs for the 3,300 we have in the final film. We had 1,000 hours of footage that we collected. All of it had to be boiled down 
to the 16 plus hours of this series. So uh, our cutting room floor is filled with good stuff and very, very hard choices of, of what storytelling is about. And so we're, we're thrilled that we are able to be able to suggest in the excellent companion book that Dayton Duncan has written and in the DVD extras that we have, but also in the kind of uh, stories that we initiate and, and can't completely tell that people can go and, and go look up that memoir or go look up that story or, more importantly, just go get that music. And that's what we're very excited about. This is not the last word. We hope this is the first word. Uh, before we let you go, I did want to ask one quick question about uh, the, the process, the making of the film. I read a while back that Peter Coyote, who serves again as your narrator and does such a wonderful job, likes to do cold readings. Is that right? Cold, cold readings, that's exactly right, and he's, he's, he's really good at it. So here's the thing. I'm what's called the scratch narrator. That means from the very first time, after maybe two drafts of the script on paper, I'll read it. And then this becomes a radio play. We're not going to waste the editor's time uh, putting in images. We're just going to kind of listen to it, see the talking heads, but listen to uh, basically look at a black screen until we've worked on it. And so every time we change an uh to a the, I go in the booth and reread it. It makes no sense to bring Peter in early, right? Mm. So when we're 98% of the way through, then we sort of say, let's, let's bring in Peter. And not only does he read it cold, he doesn't read it the picture either. So we don't care whether he hits the same marks that I did. The editors go back and readjust to him. It's like, you know, a hand-me-down suit, right? I've been wearing it. Then he puts it on and, of course, makes it look much better. But we'll, we'll change uh, a cut to fit him. And that's really important to us, that meaning is everything. And, and Peter brings this extraordinary meaning, and it's often take one or take two. Uh, that we're using uh, in in most of, of the stuff. And we're willing to break it up, phrase at a time. Um, we hold these truths from take seven, to be self-evident from take four, that all men are created equal from take one. You know, that's the way we cut this stuff up and choose a narrator in the booth. But with Peter, you can sometimes, he'll read it and we'll look at each other and say, well, will you do it again for the insurance company? You know, just, <laughs> just in case we lose this perfect take one. Uh, he's great, and and he takes the meaning that's there in my uh, imperfect uh, voice, and and puts it in this great set of pipes, and even adds more meaning to it. And we bless him. He's our brother. Uh, we've worked with him for decades now, and and we can't imagine leaving home without him. For most of there's a wonderful line by Vince Gill late in the series. He says, "All I ever wanted out of music was to be moved," and and you have done hey, this. Hey, Rich. You're, you're killing me. Yeah. You're killing me. Every single thing that you've brought up is, is you've gone right to the heart of what it is, whether it was a Harlan Howard quote or what Merle says in the intro or what Vince says in the last episode about moving. That, that's exactly what it is. Uh, the emotional archaeology that has always been at the heart of the work that we've done, uninterested in just excavating dry dates and facts and events, and not interested in the baser emotions of sentimentality and nostalgia, but real deep emotion is what Vince wants, what Wynton Marsalis means when he said this is the art of the invisible, and that art tells the tale of us coming together. Uh, it's the connection with others that we feel at that deep emotional level, and that's, that's the heart of our series, and the fact that you found that means that, at least for you, we've done a, a good job. 
Well, our thanks to to you, to Dayton, to Julie, and everybody involved in this wonderfully a poignant, moving, at times funny, and remarkable series, Country Music, coming to PBS in September. And as always, Ken, thank you for spending some time with us to talk about it. I'll pass on your compliments to them. They deserve them as much as me. And uh, we're so thrilled to be able to share it with your audience. And thanks again so much, Rich, for watching all of it and for asking such um, thoughtful questions and getting it. Ken Burns talking about his country music documentary here on Downtown the Podcast. And when we come back, we'll talk with some of the people involved in the production, country legends, Bill Anderson, Roseanne Cash, and Kathy Matea. After this word from Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Downtown, the podcast saluting country music and specifically the new country music documentary series produced by Ken Burns. One of the key players telling the story of country music actually opens up the documentary. Kathy Matea tells a wonderful story that gets the series underway, and she talked with us about her role in the making of the country music documentary. I've had the pleasure of seeing the entire country music series, and I, I just want to sit back and watch it every night, I think. Yeah, he's amazing at telling a story, and the story itself is compelling, and the combination of those two things is, you know, amazing. We were all, we are, we are all so touched here in this genre to have that lens, that powerful storyteller telling our story. How did you get involved in the project? Um, the, our public radio station, I mean public radio, our public television station here in Nashville uh, held a screening of the documentary that they did on the Dust Bowl. And I went to that event and met Dayton Duncan, who wrote and produced mm. that documentary with Ken. And then was he let me know that night that they were, were starting to work on country music. This was eight years ago. Wow. And he said, would you mind if I just, you know, when I'm in town, I just pick your brain every now and then. I was like, no, that's fine. So he'd come into town and my husband and I would go to dinner with him and he'd ask us questions, you know, like just get into a conversation and ask a bunch of questions about the town and the industry and the, and the music. And so about halfway through dinner, he would reach into his jacket pocket and pull out some old envelope and start making notes on the back of an envelope. And the next thing we know, they were saying we were consultants on the film, <laughs> but to us it just felt like having dinner and telling our telling stories, you know. It was and it was just great. And then over time, as Dayton did more reading and research, he would come into town and he would be and did more, all these interviews. He would tell us stories, and he would be telling us about how little Jimmy Dickens met his wife, or some story <laughs> that didn't make it into the show. And uh, so it was just it was quite a journey. 
Well, and the wonderful, so many great moments, but the wonderful story of John writing Where Have You Been, the whole process of him uh, singing it in the songwriter's showcase, and then how it, how it came to be, what it, what it turned out to be. Yeah, you know, sometimes, um, sometimes you know that you have, you know, some hit song, and sometimes you know you have something special and you just want people to hear it. And the whole way that that song happened, from the way it was written to the way it got heard and recorded and out on the radio, was completely organic. And not something any of us ever thought would happen. So we were kind of taking the ride with everybody else. And, um, you know, to think that you have a song that moves someone enough that they would want to include it in a, in a, in a, a, a documentary like this is, you know, it's, I mean, really, that's what we all want to do at the end of the day. You know, when we're doing music, we want to make other people feel something. We want to connect with other people through music. So that was, I didn't know until I saw the the, the first cut of the entire show, which was a couple years ago. And I, I was... I was emotionally wrecked mm. by the end of it. <laughs> it was pretty surreal. Well, and, and as one of those country radio guys who played it off the album before it was released as a single, uh, I, I had no idea that others were doing that at the same time, that that's what led to it being released. Yeah, it was very organic and... Uh, you know, kind of scary. I mean, I'm like, oh, the, people started to, that's exactly what happened. People started to ask about the song, and and we were playing it in our shows, and we would get a standing ovation in the middle of the show. The audience would stop the show. And you could hear people sobbing, and I'm thinking, well, this is really great. I mean, what a special thing. And do you want to hear this when you're driving to work on the interstate <laughs> in the morning? I mean, I was like, I, I don't know what will happen if we put this out, if people will, you know, if it'll just be too much. And as it turned out, that wasn't, that wasn't the, ca the case, but it was, um, you know, to be, it's also a really nice thing to be reminded of that story and how special it is. That's a, another thing that I got from just watching the documentary. It was like, wow, you know, I'm, that's, that was a pretty phenomenal thing to have happen in your life. And for my husband to have written a song about his grandparents and, and maybe singing it and us take the ride together. That was just amazing. Uh, there's also a great story that really sets the tone for the entire series. Are uh, you talking about your time as a tour guide in Nashville? Yes. Um, when I was 19, I moved to Nashville, quit college and moved to Nashville. And I was too, you had to be 21 years old to wait tables in Tennessee at that time. So I couldn't get a job in a, in a restaurant. So I had the name of somebody who worked at the Hall of Fame who was from the town we moved from in West Virginia. And he got me an interview, and I got a job as a tour guide making minimum wage. But it gave me – it was like a crash course in the history of country music. And I discovered Jimmy Rogers, and I discovered Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys and the Osborne Brothers and all these people who were like the generations that had come before what I had been listening to. So it was like, you know, a mandatory history lesson. And then we had this uh, painting, this big painting on the history of country music done by Thomas Hart Benton, who's one of the great American painters. And it turned out to be his last painting. They found him. Uh, he had died in the studio 
finishing up the painting. And if you look closely on the painting, there are telegraph poles with no telegraph lines, mm. and it's unsigned. But um, I used to give tours on this painting, and so they got me talking about it in the interview. And the next thing I know, when I get to see the screening of the first full edit of the series, <laughs> Dayton Duncan, who's the producer, pulled me aside. He said, I just need to warn you. You're the first thing we're going to see. <laughs> and I fell out of my chair. Uh, but it was a lovely kind of full circle moment, you know, from my, my young teenage self to be sitting here at this moment and watching watching the thread between you know, the arc of my whole career. Well, it, it's so wonderful. And it's, you know, it captures what the music is all about, that you growing up in, in West Virginia, Patsy Cline in Virginia, people in Nashville, sure, but Alabama, Austin, Bakersfield, Maine, it, yeah. it didn't matter where the music spoke to people all around the country and continues to. Yeah. And, you know, I also think that it's a, it's a big thing to wrangle. You know, country music has a lot of branches and a lot of interpretations. And all of us were like, geez, how are they going to do that? And they set it up so beautifully with uh, Catch Secor, who is the lead singer of Old yes. Crow Medicine Show. And, you know, he's a great bridge between the older artists and the youngins. And he plays some old fiddle tune that's like 100 years old. And he, t he just says, very simply, country music is all of the music that evolved from the fiddle being brought over from, the, from Europe and the banjo being brought over from Africa and them mixing together. And everything that came out of that is country music. And it all goes back to this, this one root. And uh, I thought, what a great – if someone did not know the first thing about country music, it would be a – a wonderful, it was just such a very concise way to set it up. And it was also interesting to go to New Hampshire and see this first screening. We took four days to watch all eight episodes, and a bunch of us went up. And uh, just talking to some of the people who work at the film company who were like, I, did, I was a country music fan, I didn't know I was a country music fan. Or I didn't think I liked country music, but I am in love and I can't get enough of it now. And that was very heartening as well. Just just to think there may be many, many people who think they know what country music is who are going to be surprised and opened up by this documentary. I tell you, I'm just honored to be part of it and uh, and to have had something to contribute that they thought was helpful to tell the story. So. You know, to be up there with all your peers, it's, it feels, you know, again, I just feel really blessed that I feel blessed that they've told our story so beautifully and to have a voice in that. Kathy, it's great to talk with you again. Thanks so much for making some time for us. Thank you, Rich. I really appreciate it. That's Kathy Matea talking about her role in Ken Burns' country music. Another key part of the story the legendary songwriter and singer, Whisperin' Bill Anderson. I want to talk with you about uh, the wonderful Ken Burns documentary on country music. How did you get involved in that project? Well, I got a phone call through my uh, publicist, I guess, was how it started back in the beginning. It's been, golly, what, four or five years ago, I guess, since I uh, uh, recorded my part and heard what uh, what was going down, that he was doing it, and I uh, such a big fan of Ken Burns and his work. Uh, I'm a big baseball fan, and of course I followed his uh, baseball documentary, and I thought anything Ken Burns puts his hand on, and I got a chance to be a part of it, I want to take advantage of that. So I was tickled to death that I got the call. 
And so, obviously, as a fan of his, you had a pretty good idea that he would cover the task thoroughly. But, boy, it's such a, a big subject. But from what I've seen, he managed to touch all the bases. Well, he really did. Uh, he, he's just he's just the best at, at what he does and, and surrounds himself with, uh, with people. Dayton Duncan, who uh, wrote the... Mm. Uh, I guess this, this script, as it were, there's no script really, but he edited it and all. And uh, they're they're just such consummate professionals. It was it was so much fun to work with them and and uh, and to, to just to watch the way that they did things. It was just top notch all the way. Well, and it really reminds us that the story of country music is in many ways the story of America. People growing up in uh, all kinds of diverse backgrounds, but found their way to this music and and. The story continues, but uh, it really is a remarkable piece that he's put together. We had a chance to watch the whole thing, and I can't wait for the rest of the country to see it in September. Well, I can't either because I think it's going to – I was thinking earlier today, knowing that we were going to talk about this, I was thinking, you know, I think this documentary will, will kind of uh, kind of affirm to, to my generation, the older generation, that, that what we thought – country music was and is uh, really did happen <laughs> we're going to actually see this footage and and to the younger audience it's going to say hey country music was here long before garth brooks came along and i think that and no disrespect to garth whatever whatsoever because i love him and love what he's done for our format but i'm just saying that country music history is is rich and and deep and uh, I, I think it's going to kind of bring it home to to all generations well, I, the other part that I think is very poignant is that so many people that Ken and his people interviewed have passed away since those interviews, one of them uh, uh, being your friend Mac Wiseman. You had a wonderful tribute to him on your website, and it really creates a historical record for those members of the country music family who are no longer with us. Well, it does, and uh, that will strike both a, a chord of nostalgia, I think, and, and maybe a, a note of sadness as we realize that uh, we have lost so many of the people who contributed so much to this format. One of my favorite moments in that Ken Burns series is you telling the story about the opening of the new Opry after the after the Ryman was closed, and what a terrific story that was. Thank you. Well, that, that is etched very deeply in my mind, uh, that, that particular night and the time that I that I went out front to watch the, the opening of it. I thought I'll only have one chance in my lifetime to see this, and I want to see it. And I stood out there in the audience and had tears running down my face. And then all of a sudden I remembered that the artists were going to be on in alphabetical order. My <laughs> name starts with an A, so I better <laughs> get backstage. <laughs> That's Bill Anderson here on Downtown the Podcast and another participant in telling the story of country music, her family roots go deep in this one. Her father, Johnny, is really the centerpiece of the story of country music as told by Ken Burns. And the story of country music itself, Roseanne weighed in on the Ken Burns documentary as well. You are going to love it. I can say that with utter assurance. This, this series, I wept all the way through it because no one has ever told the entire story of every part of country music until now, from Appalachia to Texas Swing to the Bakersfield Sound, all of it pulled together. It's really remarkable. So, yeah, there's a multi-artist show at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville to, uh, to kick that off in the spring. September 15th. 
It premieres nationwide on PBS Country Music, a film series by the great Ken Burns. Our thanks to Ken, Roseanne Cash, Kathy Matea, and Bill Anderson for telling us the story of the making of the film, Country Music. Eight parts, 16 hours on PBS. And thanks to you for joining us this week on Downtown the Podcast, brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.